So you're waiting in line, complaining on social media, or talking to friends about something that just doesn't work for you. How often do we think, if only the designers had thought of this or that, there's often some really easy fix that we all know would make something much, much better than it is already. I'm Manisha Amin. Welcome to With Not For, a podcast from the Centre for Inclusive Design. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Kamaragal people, the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast today, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and of course, emerging. We're so excited to have you all here today with us. So often things are designed for us, but here we explore the magic that happens when we design with people, not just for them. So today I'm joined by the phenomenal Alison Page, whose work and writing really engages with the idea of what it means to be human in the 21st century and how we can reconcile the past and the present. Alison is a Wollongbunga and Wadi Wadi woman and is an award-winning designer, film producer and storyteller whose career began at the New South Wales Government's Architect's Office in the late 90s. She links Indigenous stories and traditional knowledge with contemporary design. Alison also appeared for eight years as a regular panellist on the ABC TV show The New Inventors and in 2015 was inducted into the Design Institute of Australia's Hall of Fame. She's an adjunct associate professor at the University of Technology's Design School and the founder of the National Aboriginal Design Agency. Together with Paul Memmott, she's written a fabulous book called Design, Building on Country. So hi, Alison. How are you today? Oh, very well. Thank you. Good. Oh, look, and it's lovely to hear from you. I know that I'm at the moment sitting in North Sydney and you're in the lovely Coffs Harbour up the coast in New South Wales, Australia at the moment. Yes, I am. It's um, in Gumbangia country. But, um, yeah. Um, it's good that we can all connect from all around the place. Absolutely. I think that it's an interesting thing at the moment. I've been noticing the place I'm on far more and being really grateful for the ability to be on the place that I am. I think COVID, if one thing has taught me to really be grateful that I'm allowed and able to be in this beautiful country. Yeah, look, I think um, a lot more Australians are becoming a lot more aware of the stories of the places, not only where they're standing, but the places where they're from. And it's not just the modern history, but of course, you know, the ancient origins. I mean, we live in a continent that, you know, is uh, has the oldest living culture in the world. And, you know, from my perspective, I feel like, you know, Australians are really starting to embrace that. And it's an interesting thing, right, when we talk about the oldest living culture in the world, I think sometimes when people think, and I am generalising here, but that sometimes when people think of First Nations, we're not necessarily thinking of doctors and lawyers and architects. We're thinking of people um, singing cultural songs or playing the didgeridoo or cultural artefacts in the middle of the outback. But when I read your work, it, it really reminds me that being an old culture doesn't mean that we've stayed old. It means that we've actually had to adapt as time has gone on. 
Look, Aboriginal Australians are probably some of the most adaptive, you know, nation cultures on earth uh, because, well, we had to survive, you know, the Ice Age for a start and you don't sort of do that without a very, very, you know, highly honed sort of level of adaptation. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, that's not just sort of having to abandon 80% of the landmass so that you actually survive. Right. Um you know, uh, changing sea levels. It's it's also about how you uh, evolve and adapt different aspects of your culture. And an interesting thing I think for about Aboriginal culture is just how holistic it is, and how it's a holistic order where there is no separation between the land, the sea, and the sky. And then further to that, within within um, you know the communities themselves, there's no separation between the scientists, the doctors, the artists, uh, the makers. You know, I think I think Western society is probably far too taxonomic about nature. So we even divide up nature into biology, chemistry, you know, I mean we we're just into sort of, you know, Western culture is just very into just classifying things into separate boxes really and I think that that there's a price to pay for that absolutely and while you're talking it just reinforces to me this idea when we talk about exclusion and inclusion again we're talking about those taxonomies and and the binary nature of the way that we categorize people and places and things and yet Mm. The communities you're talking about have a really different worldview around this. How do we get that voice heard in a very Western, individualised society? At the heart of Aboriginal culture is stories. And what those stories are really about is, you know, dreaming stories are all kind of about the very filled social mores, They've got a lot of things about our values, how to love one another, how to be kind, uh, how to be truthful, why it's important to look after country. You know, we're very didactic culture. Um, And that is because, well, you know, those stories are absolutely essential to survival. But also um, we did not have the written word. And so it's not like we could have, you know, something like the Bible or whatever where we could write down how to, you know, love your brother and all these virtues that are sort of quite essential really to um, actually surviving, you know. And, I, I, you know, a big part of I think the Western world sort of embracing an agnostic sort of culture is, you know, just like throwing out all stories, right. <laughs> um, which is a bit of a shame, I think, but and ritual and things like that, you know, because don't forget ritual is about reinforcing those stories and, and that's very important in terms of remembering those things and remembering those social mores. And so I think um, and so that's what essentially songlines are, you know, songlines were stories that were attached to geographic locations and to objects as well so that as we moved around country over time on a repeated basis, we were remembering and reinforcing all of those stories which were written 
just in the stars, in in that tree over there, in that river, in that rock, in that sort of um, piece of landscape. Um, so, you know, so that we would remember and be, and how to how to treat one another, and we, all of our um, and and you know when we went into ceremony, of course, uh, those those stories would be reinforced, and you would learn deeper levels of each story as you went through initiation. And so the society was very much um, built around these values which spoke very much to caring for community, caring for one another. I mean, we have a culture that is very um, reverential towards our elders. We don't Mm. sort of farm them off into, you know, old people's homes. Because they obviously are um, uh, a huge wealth of knowledge um, that we value, but we also place a lot of value in passing on knowledge to younger generations. So that there are a couple of values I think that you know we share with many other cultures around the world, but you know they're extremely important to our culture. We our values would definitely, I'd say, centre around caring for country. I mean, it's ultimately at the very absolute core of, you know, everything we care about. And so when we care about country, and I've heard you speak about this in the past, but um, one of the things that really interests me is this notion about what country is, and especially when we think about cities and development and cities of the future and this idea of what sits on country and what caring for countries and cities might look like. Mm. Yeah, well, we don't see any separation between the land, the sea and the sky. So in a way, you know, it's interesting, the horizon is sort of like this this separation between, you know, in Western culture it's separation between just the sky and then the rest of it we can own it you know <laughs> you know the sky and the sea we can't own but the rest of it is is right. total property and total asset right and you know we're we're all in the thick of it at the moment in australia with the this perpetual conversation we're having about real estate but <clears throat> you know in the aboriginal worldview country is a way of seeing the world we don't have any separation between plants and animals the land and the sea and the sky, you know, we view country like we would a family member. You know, there's that great Deborah Bird Rose uh, wrote a beautiful line in her book in the 90s called Nourishing Trains and she writes, you know, that Aboriginal people worry about country, they sing to country, they long for country. You know, and I, for me I, I just love this notion that, you know the things that we that country for us is is animate. Country for us is 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 just not a commodity or just a thing over there. We don't really have things. Even even our objects are animate. We they have are laden with spirit and and so it's very interesting for Australians to sort of get this their head around the fact that the the ground that we walk on and the air that we breathe and the water that we swim in, you know, is 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 our family. It is a family member and it must be cared for. 
How mm. how do you see, I guess, Melbourne or Sydney for people who are outside Australia, some of our bigger cities, um, what do they feel like for you and how do we incorporate First mm. Nations mm. ideas and thinking into the way that we create what's going to come next? Yeah, well, there's a really great story about Benelong Point, and I think it's very sort of illustrative of <clears throat> the difference of the way Australian cities have been built since the colonial era and, you know, how Aboriginal people view country. So um, Benelong Point, the name, the original name for that is called Tubagali, and it's it means where the knowledge waters meet. Right. And so... That would have been a song line, <clears throat> a note in a song line um, that would have been very significant to uh, to the Gadigal people because it's where the tank stream, which is the freshwater stream, comes out and meets the harbour. So it's the place where the salt water meets the freshwater. Not only very important ceremonial grounds, but also really great fishing. So <clears throat> when the first fleet arrived in Sydney and they sailed past Tubagali, they, they saw middens that were said to be as high as 12 metres. Wow. As soon as they saw this, they immediately took that, uh, saw these middens as an asset <laughs> and they took the, the shells and yeah, first of all, they put cattle on the on the point, so they named it Cattle Point. Then they took the shells from the shell middens and they renamed it Lime Burners Point because they were crushing up the shells and they actually put the shells in the foundations of the very first government house, which is on Bridge Street. Right. It's not there anymore. It's where the Museum of Sydney mm -hmm. is. But, you know, to me, there's a few things this is an amazing convergence of a whole lot of, I suppose, the clash of two different knowledge systems and the clash of two different cultures, right, in this story because, you know, they were building the foundations of buildings that they were just replicating from another place. So, you know, a lot of what we see in Australia is, you know, Robin Boyd, who wrote The Australian Ugliness, he would call it second-hand American and second-hand England. Right. You know, which is which I think he lamented, and I think he actually saw that as a great shame that we would just try and copy um, architectural styles from from other places. And of course, not only does that architectural style not speak to our climate in any way, shape, or form, but it also, I suppose, just adds an, a layer on top of country, um, which was sort of. Um, building on country as a usurper, you know, or abrogating country right? Uh, rather than working with the culture, the cultural layers that are there written in the land that may be invisible but through great architecture and through great design. And I think with this growing awareness in Australia of these stories and these song lines that are part of the fabric of the land right now, the layers that we now put on these cities, they can start to bring some of those stories to the surface and, and make them visible. And do you have an example of that happening? Yeah, look, I think there's really great projects 
you know, happening all over Australia. I think um, a lot of the development at Barangaroo, I think, has really pushed the envelope in terms of using the public art sort of opportunities there, the the architectural opportunities there, the urban design opportunities there. They're sort of, to me, it feels like a lot of the um, different parties, you know, whether they're decision makers, whether they're developers, architects, artists, you know, these are all different tribes, but they sort of seem to be singing from the same song sheet in terms of really wanting to tell the story of the Eora Fisherwomen, really wanting to honour the memory of that site and actually start to activate that place in really interesting ways, which, you know, I think, you know, one of the projects that happened a couple of years ago there was um, a ceremony, Emily McDaniel and Wesley Enoch as part of um, Sydney Festival did uh, a ceremony there which honoured the story of the 4,000 fish that were caught, I think, in the Yes. Late 1700s. Mm. Yes. And I think that's interesting, right? Because <clears throat> if I go back in time, when we think about um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities, especially in the workplaces, it seems that the minute we start to write an action plan or something else, the first thing that arrives is the dot painting. Yeah. And I don't have a problem with dot paintings, but what you're talking about is far more, I guess, is, is a more contemporary in its thinking, but also far more nuanced in the way spaces and places are then used to reinforce story. Yeah. Look, I think, you know, Australia's journey into reconciliation, so Australia's, um, how Australia relates to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it's it's been a people's movement that I think in very natural ways has kind of started with the welcome to country, the appreciation of the dot paintings, the appreciation of, you know, the, the dance that you might see at a conference, et cetera, et cetera. But now I think we've matured enough to actually start asking the question, well, what is the story behind the dots? What is the story? Why is that dance the way it is? Um, and I think we're all sort of, you know, uh, discovering that beneath those expressions of culture, there is this wealth of traditional knowledge which can actually, it's a science that can actually teach us how to care for country and to care for each other in an extremely holistic way you know, in, in a way that is hugely sustainable. And when we think about that, what comes to mind for me is this idea of almost the, the great discovery in a weird way because it feels like, number one, we've had a stolen generation, we've had a real movement to keep people away from culture and th and hide some of the culture that was there. And now we have communities coming back and rediscovering their own culture and Australians who are non-Indigenous actually discovering the culture of this country. How How is that unfolding for you? And I guess from your perspective, how do you find the things that were lost but are, I guess, in plain sight? Yeah, look, I think that's the great 
you know, I mean, this is Australia is going through, I think, uh, an awakening about its true history and what actually happened to us. Mm. Like we were, um, we were an offshore detention centre for England, and I think. Right. The, the cold, hard truth of that is that we're probably all suffering from generational trauma because of it. We haven't actually, we don't know anything about the decisions that were made between Captain Cook leaving in 1770 and discovering Australia and the decisions to, to actually bring the first fleet here 18 years later. Like, Cook is very blamed for that, but in fact it wasn't his decision at all. I'd say Joseph Banks had a lot to do with it. Right. Um, and, and you know, they had to – the War of Independence was happening in America and so they had to stop sending prisoners over there. And so, you know, they just sort of went, oh, I know, let's, let's – remember that place that, you know, uh, Captain Cook – came but James Cook came back from um let's just send them there and you know we could send a vial of smallpox there because that really worked for us in in America um which is really documented in that book guns germs and steel I mean it's just it's it, it it's all true right um and yet you know, this was something, you know, we went heavily, I think, after that into a period which is, um, which I think the veil is only just starting to lift now, of total denial about our history. Of course, it's, you know, and perhaps, you know, perhaps it, it was far too painful for people to, to, to look at. You know, I'm not just talking about atrocities against Aboriginal people, I'm talking about atrocities against some of the convicts as well. I mean, you know, some of the biggest psychos came over here from England to run this place and it wasn't good. Like it was pretty traumatic actually. And it's funny how we were sort of just left here to just deal with it on our own and, you know, there was sort of a kind of, oh, well, you know, maybe maybe they could just blame each other, you know. (laughs) Yeah, but it's but I think now it's just like, well, hang on a second. It wasn't our fault. Nobody who lives in Australia today is to blame for this story. But the, it, but it is our truth. It's our painful truth of our history. The modern Australia was born from trauma, right. and it's just something that it's much better if we all just embrace and face. And because we'll never be able to move on, we'll never truly be able to mature as a nation unless we own up to our history. And it's and 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 we don't have to blame ourselves for that. It's England's fault. <laughs> That's right. If we have to blame someone, let's blame them over there. Well, it's their fault. Yes. They decided to do it, and actually, colonial England was really quite brutal at the time. You know, it really was, you know, and, you know, I, I just I just feel like if we want to build an identity that is strong, that is unique, that is um, 
really beautiful and has and has compassion and empathy and respect and care for country and care for each other at the center of it which we totally have the opportunity to do then you know we we have to kind of face up to some of the truth of our history and how do you think we do that well, I think artists are a major part of that because artistic interventions right. about country, um, whether and 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 I think architectural and uh, uh, interventions because they relate to place. Um, so the places themselves will speak of these stories. I think once we know the stories of this country, we will all truly belong here. And there's an interesting thing here that you're talking about, which is something I've heard from a lot of my friends who are Aboriginal particularly, is this idea that it's not us and them. It's it's a very welcoming culture when it comes to others um, and a very welcoming way of thinking about place that you're talking about. How, How do we create those places then that are trauma safe? I think we we do them collaboratively and we do them in really interesting ways and we do them, I think, with uh, a very clear set of values that you set out. You know, so my, all projects become quite purposeful. So, you know, it's something that is very lacking in, you know, a lot of design projects I find is, you know, design briefs are written, you know, like you might as well be a plumber, really. Like it's right. just like deliver the function and that's that. Goodbye. And then artists are expected to come along at the end of it all and sprinkle some fairy dust and make it all nice. But it's like we're just tacking on these bits of jewellery onto sort of developments that have that lack clarity in right. terms of what, you know, what they're trying to say. So even this idea that design does tell stories, you know, it's not really something that I think a lot of architects and designers, you know, are trained to really think about what is the narrative of what you're doing? What is what what is the purpose of what you're doing, the ultimate purpose, the higher purpose of what you're doing? You see Kevin O'Brien, who's a really interesting Torres Strait Islander architect, I think he's one of the most interesting architects in Australia today. He would argue that... Anyone who is doing a major development or project, you know, they should get all interested parties together and camp there, then, like for a few nights. Oh, I love tell that. stories together. But it's also about forging that relationship with that place and country, and understanding the nuances of the climate and the way the breeze, you know, it, you know, flows across there in the morning and you know, understanding the smells and the vegetation and just actually actually it really does come down to relationship building and whether that's with country or each other, it's it's very, very important to a successful and clear result. And you know, while you're speaking, I feel calm and <laughs> connected as you're speaking about these places and, and I think um, sometimes we're so busy rushing from one part of a project to another part of a project that that 
early intervention of why are we doing this and what does this space actually feel like can sometimes get forgotten. That's right. I mean, when, when Aboriginal people set up their travelling camps, you know, and they were always very temporary, you know, they Aboriginal people viewed architecture and, you know, a windbreak, for instance, as something quite just quite functional, like a second skin, you know. Um, it, it was all about the climactic response. They didn't sort of put highly decorative, you know, they didn't, we weren't looking to express their identity necessarily. I mean, there are examples of that around the country, of course, but for the most part, they would they would have an old uncle kind of orient the camp in a direction that related to the cultural sites around the place. They would talk about all the stories that relate to the place where they are. Of course, they would have chosen the place as well based on, you know, um, the availability of materials and things like that and, you know, some functional aspects. But the main thing was about placing yourself in terms of the cultural, the broader cultural landscape. And so before you sat down to eat, you know, and while you were building the, the travelling camp, you know, the uncle would reinforce the mnemonic, reinforce where you are in relation to that song line that relates to the mountain over there and the song line that relates to the river over there, you know. So when when we design architecture, you know, in a contemporary context in the city, you know, we will basically go through the same thing. We'll go, okay, well, where are we in relation to all of our sacred sites around right. and how can this building uh, become, can reinforce those song lines and reinforce those mnemonics so that anyone, you know, so you might go up to this 22nd floor of this skyscraper but there might just be a special little window that's framing the sacred mountain and a story there that relates to that that might have been done by an artist, you know. Right. These are the sort of opportunities that, you know, where you can converge, you know, really beautiful contemporary architecture, you know, and the very best of contemporary design with these ancient stories. And so who yeah. should be there? And how do we start these conversations in the first place? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And it's a really great question in relation to um, cities because, you know, one of the issues that we're finding now is that, you know, there's there's this great demand for, um, you know, architects and designers wanting to really engage with community and really engage with traditional owners um, but, you know, there's only so many traditional owners to go around. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, so, I mean, why this is probably why I find a lot of the teams that I work on now, they're really multifaceted. So you might have um, an, an elder, an artist, an Aboriginal ecologist, a marine biologist, um, wow. uh, you know, um, you know, somebody who is an expert in fire stick farming. I mean, I think the I think the point is, in a way, it goes back to the very first point I made about not boxing yourself in too much. You know, um, because 
you know, an architectural project or designing a, a new city, it's a very complicated process that involves a whole lot of different species of animal, if you like, in a way, you know, you've got to have um, people who design transport, people who are architects, people who design public realm, you know, um, people do do spatial studies. Um, but I, I, so I think having these multifaceted teams that are made of Aboriginal experts in these fields, which are, you know, they're out there, um, you know, I think is, is really important. But I also think having storytellers, I think, involved at the very get-go. So whether that's an artist or whether that's elders from the site, elders from the area, I mean, that is always one of the first protocols. Um, you know, obviously the larger the project, you just have to wait until those elders are available, you know. <laughs> like you sort of can't just, you sort of just can't forge on without them in a way. But, um, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at innovative and ways of engaging with those elders. Like one of the ways we're sort of thinking at the moment around Barangaroo is um, making films with the elders right. so that the and so the the elders are able to kind of articulate very beautifully how they feel about that place, and so that becomes the consultation tool in a way. That's sort of like, so for instance, Barangaroo is really interesting because the values, one of the core values that was defined very early on of that development was the honouring of women. So how that would translate into practice is you know having um uh, just um gender bias commissions you know right. women only commissions right or 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 designing great places for families or designing great places for women you know so how do you um how do you build that sort of gender into into architectural spaces you know um, so that was the, that's sort of one of the challenges that was sort of thrown out there by the elders from the very beginning was Barangaroo was a woman. She was fierce. She's probably Australia's first feminist, actually, because when she was invited to um, Governor Macquarie's place for dinner, she, to- she was told to dress appropriately, and so she just turned up naked with a bone in her nose. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, which is, you know, like stuff, stuff you guys. Yeah, so, you know, that sort of strength uh, in her values, you know, she'd stand in front of people, Aboriginal people who were being flogged for um, practising their culture. She would stand and protect them. You know, so, so that sort of resilience, strength, the fact that she's female, she was in charge of the food supply in Sydney at the time. See, these are all great values that you can build into a site so that people come away with that kind of, you know, uh, you know, knowing about our identity and history as a nation. Thank you so much for this conversation. What I'm really feeling is this real convergence between the idea of the built environment and the unseen environment that comes to life through storytelling and through the arts and through connection with place and people and sitting in spaces and seeing what emerges from from that space. And also 
the link between the past and the present, which is really quite contemporary, Mm. and the things that we can learn from that as well. So it's been a pleasure talking to you today. We'll definitely put some of these resources up for people to see as well at the end. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of With Not For. If inclusive design is something you'd like to learn more about or you'd like to work with us, connect with the Centre for Inclusive Design and myself on LinkedIn or head to our website, centreforinclusivedesign.org.au. For more about today's topic and guests, check the links in the show notes or the podcast page on our website. We look forward to bringing you another episode of With Not For very soon. Thank you.